man is a rational animal, so at least we have been told. Throughout a long life, I have searched diligently for evidence in favour of this statement. So far, I have not had the good fortune to come across it. Those are the words of Bertrand Russell from his 1943 book, An Outline of Intellectual Rubbish. In a recent Bunker episode, I spoke to UCL's Thomas Gift, who suggested perhaps we are in a post-logic era when it comes to electoral politics. That phrase, post-logic, stuck with me. Billions of people are eligible to vote this year, and I'd like to believe they're thinking hard about their decisions. But perhaps I'm being naive. Do we vote logically, and have we ever voted logically? I'm Jacob Jarvis, and here to discuss this with me is Dr. Sandra Obradovich, an associate researcher of the Electoral Psychology Observatory. Thank you for joining me, Sandra. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Sandra, when you're looking at voter psychology, where do you begin? Where do you start? So I think the key thing to start with is acknowledging that voter psychology is social psychology. It's not something that happens in the mind of the voter outside of social influences or political or cultural influences. It is a mind that is very much shaped and acts on the basis of social influences. So what we do at the Electoral Psychology Observatory is very much try to understand all of these different dimensions from the individual to the social to the institutional that might be influencing how voters think and also how they act and behave. So on a basic level, I mean, how does the average person, when they are an approaching election, when an election is coming up, how are they thinking around that? And as you say, is it less individualistic than I might be proposing by my language there? So we use the metaphor of referees and supporters when we talk about how people make decisions in political context. So there's always been an assumption, I think, that there is rationality that drives decision making. And I think more recently there is research that says actually that's really not the case. Um, we're not so much rational voters as we are rationalizing voters. So in a sense, when we think about this, this framework of how do we make decisions? So one suggests that we make decisions as referees. We go through all the available information and we make the right decision on the basis of it, right? So it's more of this idea that we're more neutral. The second option is this idea of we make decisions as supporters. We have a team that we already support and then we evaluate any information that we come across in the political sphere on the basis of that team. Now, What's interesting to me is that when we talk to voters, most of them will say that they are referees and most of them will assume that the people they disagree with are supporters. But really what we find is that the majority of people tend to act as supporters rather than referees. Do people not realize how perhaps how long their decision making process is? Is it more of a lifelong thing than we we maybe think? We think of election cycles, as you say, it starts and it ends and it's it's a few months or it's a few years. But actually, from what you're saying there, it sounds like you're thinking about every election you vote in from the minute you become politically aware. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think reducing kind of the political nature of humans to only be activated in times of elections it isn't good because we are political all the time, right? Yeah. We uphold democracies, not just at elections, but in local events, through councils, through everyday engagement with our neighbors and our communities. So it's not just that elections are the only moment where kind of our political decision making is activated. So there's a lot of research coming out of political science that has looked at parents and family socialization and how that impacts the electoral behaviors and, and experiences of young people. If you vote in your first two elections that you're eligible to vote, you are more likely to become a habitual voter and a lifelong voter. So there are kind of patterns across the lifespan that impact how we engage in elections. Um, it's not just that every election is a new experience that we enter yeah. into blindly. Are there consistent points that you can see that, that matter most to voters or 
do people consistently say certain things matter most to them, but actually when you research it, that's all over the place? I think we get certain tropes from media in terms of what are the things that matter most to voters. Now, what's interesting there is that the things that we tend to worry about are also the things that we tend to overestimate in terms of how big of a problem they are. So the example of immigration is the best one. People constantly overestimate how many migrants are coming into any given country. And even when we're told the facts, we don't believe them. And it's because that's a point of worry. So it drives our attention. We look more and we pay more attention to news that communicates this kind of belief and reaffirms it. Um, and this relates to this concept of something known as motivated reasoning. So we are motivated to reason in a way that allows us to kind of fit in new beliefs into our pre-existing beliefs. So I am more likely to believe something if it aligns with my worldview. And if it challenges it, I'm going to assume that it's not true. Does that go back then maybe to a sort of evolutionary level? I remember reading this study a little while back about how you could you asked people to estimate the likelihood of them being hit by a car or getting cancer, and they would put that down and it would be much lower than how statistically likely it was. Then you would give them the statistics and then ask them to do it again, and they still went lower because they believed for them it was lower than it was. So can that warp it, for example, say, if I really like Joe Biden, my estimations of his negative points and the negative things around him might be below it, but if I don't like him, for example, so if I don't like him and I'm thinking around migration, I might estimate that how he's handling migration is far worse because I already don't like him. Yeah. So in a way, kind of our our social groups or our social identities very much become lenses through which we interpret the information. So the same event will be perceived by two different political sides completely differently. There's a level of interpretation that happens that's social that gives us a conclusion about what that event means. So even in the context of immigration, to say that one politician, that's my politician, Maybe they haven't handled it well, but they might have handled it better than the other person would have, right? And that's yeah. a rationalizing statement that allows me to still support that person because they're better than someone else. We worry so much around fake news when it comes to talking around politics at the minute, but this is going to sound very, very pessimistic from me. But can you course correct that then? If people basically just actually people's interpretations of the facts, even if you present them, the facts are probably going to be completely wrong Anyway, I know fake news and disinformation and misinformation is obviously a massive problem. But on a psychological level, are humans just not logical? They're bad at understanding things, even if you put it right in front of them as the truth. So there is evidence to show that we can debunk misinformation and, and fake news, right? We can help people to kind of systematically go through the process of correcting incorrect yeah. information. That does not change their minds. Right? Okay. So it might make us realize that what I think about this topic is maybe wrong or incorrect or skewed, but it does not change my position on the topic. Yeah, so in terms of logical, that, that, that's just a gut feeling then. People will still trust their gut even if they've been told their gut's wrong and the brain is right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, intuitions and emotions, I think, play a really big role in political decision making because... You know, anger is an emotion that very much mobilizes people to engage in political different types of political activity, whether that's more traditional forms of voting or protest and activism. So underestimating the role of emotion to mobilize us to do things, I think, I think is is a big mistake. We spoke about the the long tail process of the decision making, and it can be built up in a, a lifelong way. For example, people just copying their parents or learning from their parents. Can it all just change, though, kind of 180 when we're inside the polling booth? And is that quite a hard thing for you to study when it comes to the psychology of that? Because it's quite a private moment and people can just completely 
reverse on what they would say they believe. Yeah. So there are, of course, a lot of unconscious biases and unconscious thoughts that influence our decisions. And in psychology and political science as well, um, a lot of the research relies on self-reports. So asking people what they think about something, you know, polling is a great example of that. Polling doesn't always predict elections. Um, now, how you can try to overcome that is, is different types of studies that measure things like someone's heart rate while they're in a polling booth. Does their heart rate change or fluctuate? How long does someone stay in a polling booth? But it is notoriously difficult to catch that in the moment. I think what's interesting to think about still, even if it is to some extent limiting the self-reported data, is what do people think about when they are in the polling booth? So what do they report as the thoughts that are going through their heads? Now, a lot of people will be making their decisions up in that moment. So there is a percentage of people who only decide once they are in the polling booth what they're going to vote. Uh, that might be because of social pressures that tell them to vote one way and they want to vote another. It might also be because they simply don't know. And then one name is more familiar than another, and that's how they make their decision. Dominantly, most people will have made their decision up before they go into the polling booth. But I think what's interesting is when we kind of look at how do people feel as they're making their decision, there are a lot of emotions there. So there's happiness, there's excitement, there's hope, there's also anxiety and worry. But what I think is more interesting, and it comes back to this idea that the psychology of a voter is social, is that a lot of people are thinking about what are other people going to do. There is an element of the kind of bigger social context and environment coming in to the booth with us. It's not just an individual no. making a decision. It's an individual making a decision in the context of thinking, how do I fit into the bigger picture of the society that I live in? With that question of how they fit into the bigger picture too, though, do some voters, did it change across country or across region or where people are in terms of how they're thinking about how they fit in? So I suppose, is it for they're worried about them fitting in? Or are there some people who are doing it in, as a means of empathy? Or unfortunately, most people are actually just thinking, I want to fit in and I hope people line up with me. So there's both. I think uh, on the one hand, you do have people who, who see the function of democracy and the role of a voter as something that upholds democracy and connects you with society at large. So it's not an activity that's an individual one, but it's one that makes you a citizen. Mm. So I think for a lot of people, the act of voting isn't just about making an individual decision. It is about contributing to society. So some of the work we've done, for example, on um, affordances uh, made for uh, citizens with disabilities and what kind of barriers are there for them to vote. So a lot of strategies for enabling more citizens with disabilities to vote is to allow them to engage in postal voting. And when we've interviewed people to ask them about kind of these different affordances, a lot of them say that, I don't want anything that's special for me. I want something that lets me be part of normal society yeah. and do everything the way that everyone else is doing it. So it's not about voting from home. It's about being able to go to the polling station and participate in yeah. a social activity. Does people's psychology change on voting depending on how they vote? So voting from home, for example, I when I vote, I go into the booth, quickly tick whatever I'm ticking and I leave. And it's of course it's final because I'm there and it's final. I don't have any chance to for it to feel like it lingers where if i sent off a postal vote i would feel like well that's a few days out and i would almost think oh what if i've changed my mind in those few days do we see that people change the way they think around depending on the environment they vote in so a little bit there are some differences notably a key difference is the kind of expression of emotion uh among people who vote potentially digitally or postally there is a concern about you know the more technical aspects of it will this arrive okay will the technology work there is also notably the aspect of the the social feeling of it if you vote postally or if you vote digitally 
you're not doing an act in the context of other people. And the irony of it is that polling stations are not unique things. They are usually kind of hosted in schools, in local community centers and clubs. And so it's kind of bringing the political aspect into community spaces that just reinforces that yeah. social connectedness. Has over recent years people's, the psychology of voters, has it changed alongside the political landscape changing? I wouldn't necessarily say that the the psychology of voters has changed, but I think our understanding of the psychology of voters has changed. I think we're moving away much more from this kind of rational actor assumption. We are acknowledging much more the idea that reasoning and emotions interlink. They're not two opposites of a spectrum where one is good and one is bad in the context of politics, but they work together. And emotions and intuitions can be quite important. So I think more research is acknowledging this and acknowledging the, the role that social groups have on us. Parents are not the only source of influence as we develop. They might be as we were younger, but as we get older, we have friends, we have hobby groups, we have religious groups, we have social groups. All of these come to matter to shape kind of the lens that we take towards political issues. How does the, the logical behavior of politicians affect our, our logic? So it would seem to me that the, the options have maybe become a bit less rational in recent times does that make people feel oh no they're irrational so i need to take a little bit more time to work it out or does it drag everyone down to the bottom with them i think the key concern there is the the shift in trust i think we're much more distrusting of politicians and institutions even those within our own camps right even the ones that are within our own political uh groups we are losing trust towards them. And I think that makes it a lot harder to then make an informed decision because you don't know what information to trust and, and not. Have you seen any particular politicians or particular types of politicians, maybe consistently, who would appear to be better at kind of utilizing the way voters think to make sure they vote aligned with them? So there is a growing field in social psychology that looks at this idea of um, political leaders as entrepreneurs of identity. So essentially, it conceptualizes leadership not as a kind of input-output or, you know, a messenger and audience framework, but it's a relational thing. The only way that a leader gets power is if they get support from voters. The only way they can appeal to voters is if they can position themselves as part of the group, right? Yeah. So it's about positioning themselves not as the leader of, you know, people who share certain values, but people who are of certain characteristics. And I think we've seen through the last 10 years, the rise of kind of populist leaders, right, that do this very well. They appeal to people's social identity needs. They appeal to their emotions in a lot of ways. So there's both an emphasis on appealing to people's anxieties and fears and worries by offering mm. sometimes oversimplified solutions, but also of kind of offering people the possibility to feel good about themselves. A lot of times in, in kind of political rhetoric, there is a lot of negativity towards the other. There's a lot of kind of mud throwing and, and you know, stereotyping. And here's someone coming to tell you, you're a good person. You deserve to live in a country that cares about you and that takes care of you. And I am one of you. And so yeah. I will do that for you. And I think we've seen certain politicians, especially on the kind of more far right, really tap into that psychology much more successfully than on the left. Is that why progressive politics can sometimes struggle? Because do voters not really often like changing in their minds very much and would rather have someone who came along and said, I agree with your mind and look at me and I'll do what your mind wants already. And that's just easier for us to fit in. We've got so much stimulation coming in. You'd rather have something that was quite straightforward for you. 
Yeah. I think most of us will say we're open to changing our minds, yeah. but we're open to changing our own minds, not having okay. someone tell us we're wrong and that we have to change our minds, right? So the the typical example in, in some of the work we do, we um, do a lot of interviews with first-time voters across different countries. So how is that experience of being a voter for the first time, entering into political conversations and, and going through that experience? And what a lot of them say is, oh, um, if they have a parent that they disagree with, they say, you know, I just don't talk to her because she's not going to change her mind. Yeah. But we never talk about political conversations from the point of view of the possibility that we will be the ones changing our minds. It's always yeah. about other people. So I think it is important to acknowledge that we do have the capacity to change our minds and we are open to it. But it has to be within a context where we feel both psychologically safe and we trust the people we're engaging with. People turn the political into the personal, right? You vote like this because you are this kind of person. That means one, I could never vote like you because I'm not the same person. And two, I don't have to engage with your ideas because there's never going to be any common ground. And I think that is really, really dangerous because none of us would say that our political views define us as a person, right? Our personalities are impactful for how we perceive politics, but we are more than just our political opinions as humans. So we yeah. don't want to be reduced to that by other people. And when we are, it does create that kind of threat to our sense of self and our safety. Have we hit a kind of point where it's quite hard to remove logic from identity and see them as two separate, completely separate things? Yeah, I would say so. And I think it's increasingly dangerous to separate them because then we're not understanding the fundamental basic needs that people have that are being fulfilled through social groups and through acting on the basis of social groups and shared identities. So I think it's important to understand how logic and understanding of what is logical is not objective. It is subjective and it is socially subjective. At the start of this, uh, I mentioned the phrase post-logic. I'd like to wrap up by asking, and do you think that's a fair way to describe the landscape we're in now? Or maybe actually... Does that come from the assumption that there's ever been a particularly logical approach to all of this? So post-logic doesn't work because we've always been post-logic. Yeah, I would say we've always been post-logic. Um, I think we're just acknowledging it more now. Luckily, more and more work is focusing on the fundamental shared human capacities and biases that we all have. Rather than saying it's one political side that's the problem, more and more research is saying, okay, here are the shared mechanisms it's not just people on the left or people on the right that are making biased decisions or have biased thinking. It's all of us. And so how do we, one, correct that, but also to work with that? That's the key thing. Rather than say that we're in an era of post-logic, we have to just think about what kind of logic are we working with. Sandra, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Listeners, if you enjoyed The Bunker, remember you can support us on Patreon. For £3 a month, you'll get episodes early and ad-free. Your support really does keep us going, so if you can spare the cash, we'd be eternally grateful. I'm Jacob Jarvis. Thank you for joining me in The Bunker. The Bunker was written and presented by Podmasters Managing Editor Jacob Jarvis. The producer was Eliza Davis-Beard, and the audio producer was Robin Lieburn. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by Jim Parrott, The Bunker is a Podmasters production.